Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. And up next, considering, in Steve Magnus's words, how to ditch the facade and embrace reality. After that, World of Running updates about a new American record, a new NCAA record, and more. Welcome back. We are glad to be with you again. And guess what? We are going live. That's what it's called, right? Going live. Yeah, you got the vernacular. You're doing Mm -hmm. a live thing. Mm -hmm. We are going live on January 18th at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time via Facebook. So just go to our Facebook page and you can check it out. We are live with Rivertown Races Andrew Bukema talking about how to train in January for your spring races and certainly pertinent to those who are thinking about doing Rivertown races specifically, but much more in general, because if you're running a race this spring, this is going to be helpful information for you. And so we're going to do that at 8 p.m. on January 18th via Facebook Live. Check out our Facebook page, A to Z Running, or you can find us at uh, the Rivertown Races Facebook page as well. And that's going to be very fun and exciting. Yeah, should be great. Remember, you can also get a discount to the race itself, Rivertown Races, A T O Z 10, A to Z 10 for 10% off. Also, if you do sign up, then you get a discount the other way around with us with a training custom training plan if you would like you also have access at that point to a general training plan made by us because we are the training partners officially for the race we're glad to be able to partner with rivertown races in this capacity Um, so even if you don't necessarily upgrade to any of the upgrades uh, we're providing the training materials and resources for anyone for free as well on their training page so you can check that out if you're looking to register if you're looking for how do i find information about this training stuff or all of the things go to rivertownraces.com you'll figure it all out And as we've said many times, even if you're running other races as your like focal point or goal races in the spring, you can still get a discount on a custom training plan if you are also signed up for Rivertown races. So do that first. You got to register. And the way these things go, don't wait until the last minute because you get none of the perks if you wait too late to register for the race. Mm -hmm. Register now and then take full advantage of the myriad opportunities to excel this spring. Including, and not limited to, a live session on Wednesday, January 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time via Facebook Live. We got good stuff coming up then, but then right now, we're going to get on to our main topic. So remember all that time ago on our last podcast episode when we were talking about Steve Magnus's book, Do Hard Things? And more generally, just trying to talk about the concept of toughness and what that means or doesn't mean as we think about how to excel at running and be tough while we do it. Um, So we found that we found the read very intriguing and so much so that we thought, you know, these key ideas expressed in the book are the kinds of things that we like to talk a lot about around here. And as Magnus is prone to do, he put them in words that are interesting with research that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do here is look at the first pillar of his four pillars of toughness, as it were. Um, And this one in particular is a a very important one for when we think about what it takes to thrive as runners. Um, So we're going to kind of walk through that a little bit here and give you kind of a sense of what this looks like as we think about making important decisions and reacting to our own expectations as well within the sport so that first pillar is ditch the facade embrace reality Mm -hmm. so what do we need to think about here andy there's a lot of conversation in this pillar about confidence and we need to be able to accurately assess the demands of a situation without this blind ambition and false sense of confidence Mm -hmm. So we need to have a more accurate idea of what true confidence is. We talk about true toughness, true confidence. <laughs> this, All this content, what I love about it is that not only does it directly pertain to running and we can actually implement some of these really good practical ideas that he has, but also life <laughs> and other areas that we're pursuing within 
our full and thriving lives. So like the definitions of words, like the definitions of words, like what does <laughs> this really that. mean? <laughs> and it really hit home for me because he goes on to talk about the way that we falsely perceive confidence and it. It hit me. It hit me right here. Mm. Deep Why? inside. Why did it hit you right there? Because Andy? I resonated very deeply with the false sense of confidence. It shook so. you to your core. It is, shook that, me is that what it means to, to resonate core. deeply? Yes. The all facade, these idioms. These the are facade, great idioms. The facade but fell down. It shook it off. Let's take away all the idioms, <laughs> yeah. though. And, like, in, in practice, what are you talking about here? It, yeah. it, are you saying that your confidences are false or no i'm just we'll get to that i'll talk more deeply about that you are well let me say this because um at at a just a baseline like the idea of um accurately assessing and i can't even remember you said you said something that just really is an important but ambition um and blind ambition as it were is in so many ways for a runner it we don't necessarily want to this isn't the kind of thing that you want to say to somebody else um, because that's where you get on like the you're crushing my dreams kind of thing, um, which can, in fact, be true and and is not the intent because we have to look at something like um, how many times how many of you have heard the story of the marathoner who's been running for years and years and then, you know, they had some kind of breakthrough and they like ran a 20 minute marathon PR. Well, that can happen. Yeah, that does happen. It actually happens a lot. So we as we are looking at someone else's situation need to be very careful in how we're self-talking about them and outwardly talking to them because this is not the kind of thing that we can readily, accurately diagnose in another person, Um, at least not without knowing the person in more deeper and thorough ways like everything about them. Um, And even then, who knows? But the point being, this is the kind of self-examination stuff that we we don't try to do this to accuse a person of you need to ditch the facade and embrace reality. But what does it look like and where do we tend to make mistakes as we're looking at our own situations mm-hmm. and how we might be able to perceive these things more accurately? So let's get started. Magnus wrote, being tough starts far before we enter the arena or walk on stage. It starts with our expectations. And we have talked about some of his work in regards to the mismatch theory. <laughs> That's such a good one. And there's a difference between what we expect and what we're capable of. If there is a difference, then we crumble under stress. So that's in principle, that's what mismatch theory is suggesting is that I expect certain things. Um, and when those things are not happening, then I cave. Um, whether or not physiologically I am literally at my limit or something but the the expectation gap causes the basically um, implosion at least in a perception sense yeah for those runners who assume the race will be easy or that it will be impossibly challenging they have less success than those who have an appropriate idea of what to expect and then how they will tackle that mm-hmm. challenge so it's not meaning that this person has an un- necessarily an unrealistic unrealistic expectation of what the result could be, but maybe how they'll get there. Mm. Maybe they'll think it's going to feel easy or be easy, but it's going to be very challenging and they haven't reviewed or I haven't reviewed, I should say more in first person. I haven't reviewed all of the things that could happen within the race Mm. and the challenges that might present for me to imagine and practice overcoming them. Yeah, and that and, and that applies to not just necessarily like in the thinking, but also in the things you're doing. Um, you think about like there's situations where if something is more important to me, I tend to do certain things with it and and around it. Um, and so if if in that sense, if I feel something is uh, a a major challenge and I'm intending to rise to the challenge, but I'm not perceiving that to be something that's going to be easy to overcome, for instance. Mm-hmm. I tend to prepare myself differently for it. Yeah. And if we can imagine these challenges coming or prepare for these challenges that are coming, it's less likely to pop up in our radar as a threat. But if we're running along and something pops up that we never thought of, we still can perceive it as a challenge if we've practiced doing that time and again. But Oftentimes we perceive it as a threat and how we respond might be in a more um, uh, stressed state Uh. and a more negative state than if we perceive it as a challenge. You know, that's one of those things um, 
all the kind of the nuances that surround this. It's one of the reasons why people talk about how it's important uh, if if the experience is a familiar one for you. So like if you've been to that race before and you kind of have an idea of what to expect in terms of even just like the race environment and details. Um, we talked a lot uh, when, especially when I was coaching high school runners, um, talked a lot about why you tend to see things with like upperclassmen who have been doing it for a few years. Um, the way that they go about things is very different and sometimes to their detriment. Cause again, Magnus is saying that both extremes yield worse results than somewhere in the middle. And so if we're overly confident or if we view a challenge as overly challenging or, or impossibly challenging, mm -hmm. both of those things. And the difference between the two, as we're talking about vernacular, <laughs> the semantics of it, a challenge is something that's difficult, but manageable. Hmm. And that's the difference. So if we're able to perceive a challenge and that challenge comes and we can then uh, know that it's manageable for us to overcome because we've practiced it or we've thought about it, then we're likely to more likely to overcome. And then a threat is something we're just trying to survive mm. or get through and hope that it ends soon. <laughs> but in a marathon, that could be miles and miles and miles. Well, let's uh, think about, okay, so the state of thinking, if you're in the moment in the marathon where suddenly uh, you have now convinced yourself that that you've bonked, you know, so I've, I've hit the wall, right? This is kind of the way people tend to describe it. Uh, that's the moment when I hit the wall, right? So the from that moment on, chances are you're viewing the rest of the race as a threat, like you're in a state of threat, at least. Um, and so that being the case, the survival mode that we tend to go into is not the same kind of experience as, well, this is, you know, this is a challenge and it's not easy, um, but it, you know, there's more to it. Mm -hmm. So that can make, it can make a very, very big difference. It doesn't always mean that the end result is any different, uh, but it does have a lot to do with how we are engaging with the challenge in the moment. And something that we really can't control outside of preparing our minds for this. <laughs> yes, I'm not saying that very clearly, but we do have a biological reaction. Mm -hmm. So if you perceive something as a threat versus a challenge, they've studied that there is a biological reaction that is different between the two, and it's in the levels of cortisol and adrenaline. So if we have too much cortisol, which is more of the threat stage, it limits our ability to concentrate. This wasn't in his book. This is like more research that I did in it. But um, with adrenaline and testosterone, it's more sustainable for your race. And uh, you're going to have you're going to have all of that in your race. But it's the different levels that kind of makes a recipe to do better in long distance running. You know, that's an interesting. Um, it'd be worth exploring, too if how much of that is conscious and unconscious in terms of like when the threat perception happens. Um, right. Because yeah, that's true. the idea here is that it, it can be induced by a perception. So I can see something as a threat and then have a biological response that associates with it. But there's also a physiological situation where like your body gets to a point where it's like, this is no longer possible. And so I'm, I'm, I'm collapsing physiologically and yet I'm not stopping. And so does that potentially still induce the same kind of biological threat response? I, I, I don't have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. However, I do know that in, in principle, many runners will describe this moment where it's like it started. I couldn't focus as well anymore. I started like really just kind of getting distracted. I started fading off the pace and then I'd have to your like breathing was irregular. Your breathing's irregular. And I have to like kind of concentrate to get myself back in the groove. The rhythm is no longer natural. All those kinds mm -hmm. of things. That's not. It's it's predictable in a sense um, when we enter a certain state of uh, both the psychology and the physiology mm -hmm. of what's happening. So how do we set our mind on reality? Ah, so what's the good that we should be trying to pursue here? And I love lists. This is a list. Set appropriate goals. That starts there. And incremental is great too. Incremental goals. And then of course, we always love the idea of having things that you can, we talked about this in another episode, but goals that are achievable to you beyond performance. So mm -hmm. things that are within your control. Well, and even there, when we talk about appropriate goals, there's one goal that is the most appropriate goal for any runner in a situation who's like trying to perform. Um, I certainly understand that you wouldn't have this kind of goal if you're trying to just go out and enjoy the time and not you know, see how fast you can go. But for any runner who's trying to perform, 
that every goal should start. And I have said this many times, so now I'm just beating a dead horse, as they say. Um, But every goal should start with, my goal is to get the most out of my body I possibly can today, given today's situation. And if that's the case, it's an always accomplishable goal. That's on your race. You don't want to give everything you have every day. I'm not talking about that. (laughs) I'm talking about races. I know. I just want to clarify for our audience. Um, But the point is, is that's a goal you can achieve every single time, no matter what. Then what it what it is is becomes then how do I want to go about achieving that? Because there's lots of ways to achieve it. One is to go as hard as you can, as long as you can. And then eventually you're going to, you know, die. Not literally. And when you can no longer go hard anymore, you can crawl until you get across the finish line if you want. But either way, you know you gave everything you could, right? Um, but that's not necessarily how you want to finish the race. And so the goal starts with, I want to get everything I can out of my body. And then the second layer of it is, and I want to finish in this kind of capacity. It's not a time goal yet. You can certainly have time goals. I would argue you shouldn't, but <laughs> I guess I'm in the minority with that one. Uh, but the point here is it, to, to establish what it means to have an appropriate goal. We have layers of that. And among them is understanding that certain kinds of goals tend to allow me to engage with them in certain kinds of ways. If your goal is a time goal, you have highly restricted yourself to a certain kind of approach to something, meaning like to perform based on a time. Um, so it starts there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to go about it, but that's I appreciate that as the first step. Set authentic goals. And I wanted to clarify How that. Is that different? Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's not setting a goal for your public self, but for your true self. Once again, how I know is that, that sounds <laughs> it sounds so flowery. I'm I doing think. this on purpose. But I know Magnus does this kind of stuff a lot, so it's predictable here. It's the idea that other people, like how other people see your goal. Do other people think your goal is glamorous or wonderful? Or is this what your coach expects or your parents or your friends or your significant other? Well, we should say what your coach expects is the most important thing. (laughs) But I'm kidding. He's kidding. It's the opposite of that. So instead of your public goal, which might look flashy or be or or opposite sandbagging, if I like publicly want to. That's how Andy does public goals. No, she always tries to downplay try to other people's people, expectations. I've just had some bad situations. So in general, it's very difficult to trust other with, with your goals, like things that matter to you sometimes. But then we don't need to like post specifics on social media. Like you don't need to say like, I'm going to write, I'm going to run this time so that you know that you can achieve that and then have the admiration and affirmation of those around you. Having true goals are ones that you set for yourself that you see as being something that will satisfy or make content this aspect of your your striving. Mm. Now, I do want to at least say this because there's a possibility that he's listening and it's important to give the shout outs where they're due. So Q, if you're listening. Uh, so my my old coach, college, well, he's not old, uh, my previous coach, um, college and for many years after college, uh, Q once pushed hard against me at at a time when I was kind of trying to avoid the idea of like setting clear goals. Like I was just like, I just want to kind of like see what happens and stuff. And he's like, no, you have got to like put a commitment down and then pursue it. And part of the reason why he was pushing me toward that at that time is because I was trying to basically just forgive myself for whatever happened, you know, just kind of letting it happen and not holding myself to any account. Um, and so I can appreciate that perspective there was you're not pushing yourself towards something uh. when you're doing that. Um, and he and I, and it was a very positive result at the time in terms of what he was trying to do for me. It didn't mean that we started setting these like crazy time goals that it was like, if you don't hit this, then you're, you know, worthless here. That was not happening at all. But instead, it was just looking at what is the next step in the process for you and go after it, like like do what it takes to chase after that next step of growth. Um, and that mattered a lot at the time. In general, that's an important piece in that puzzle potentially, but it's not the top layer of that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I appreciate nuances like this, as Magnus often tries to do, um, this idea of like a true kind of an, an authentic goal here, a true self goal is in that sense, it's the, what is it that is that next step for me? What does it look like to achieve that step? And it's not always the kind of thing that when someone says, what's your goal, you can answer in a three second response, um, which is probably part of the reason why, you know, like it's not, you can't really post it on your Instagram in a cool picture 
Is that what Instagram does? Cool pictures? Um, but it's more important than that flashy thing, as Andy said. Yeah. The next one, define judgments and expectations. Magnus writes that he's seen far too many people define success by the wrong measures. And this is, again, a topic that we've talked about even recently, outcome goals versus process-oriented goals. If you place a goal that's an outcome goal and you don't reach it, there are there is no actionable feedback for you. Hmm. Where if it's a process goal and you can see the ways that you didn't follow through, then you can see how you can improve in that way. Where if you just don't hit something, you can just be like, oh well, I didn't I didn't hit my goal. So remember your second discipline of execution, which is acting on the lead measures. That's a process goal, um, and then considering I think the point of like defining judgments means like know what good and bad looks like in the pursuit of these goals. And so if I'm pursuing it well, or if I'm pursuing it poorly, I need to be able to know that. So I know how to then adjust to pursue better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next one is course correct, correct for stress. Mm. So sleep deprivation, we know that that does a number on your brain for stress and fatigue. And it's interesting because there's different ways that stress and sleep, sleep deprivation affect you. But overall, you just need to be well rested. And then priming your mind. I loved this one because I think that it's great even for other performance oriented tasks. If you're under stress, research shows that you receive information differently when uh, not under a stressed state and when we're more relaxed, we minimize bad news and focus on good news. But under stress, we have a negative bias. Hmm. And then it primes us to recognize danger, which is an instinctual thing and it can be good sometimes. But if we are runners and we're not actually in a flight or fight situation, we want to be able to prime our minds for this what would you call it, event, so that we we know we actually have trained ourselves that this is not one of those situations. This is not a life or death situation. Mm. So we can change that uh, stress into a more relaxed state and we'll look for those opportunities. So we're training our minds, we're priming our minds to look for opportunities instead of threats. This is where, um, so a lot of people look at, and, and we're, we're going to try to provide a few suggestions here, but a lot of people look at the idea of like, um, doing something about my stress. And many of us will agree that a lot of times stress is externally induced. Like the, the search circumstances around me are why I am stressed and I can't always change. So Andy, when you have a lot going on with work plus family things, plus, you know, suddenly it's a more stressful time. It certainly is that. So let's assume there's two potential situations here. And we're going to try to address both of them in a couple different ways. But let's assume one situation is the stress is externally induced for the most part. And the other potential situation is it's more internally induced where there may be stressful situations, but I am increasing that via my response and how I'm responding. So think about, think about both of those. Let, let's consider then some suggestions. Yeah. Well, I'm not really sure if it's directly to that, but this no, is a I'm really going, practical. I'm going to tie it directly to that. Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. You, you uh, have to do this first. Oh, so a practical suggestion is like right before a performance or before a race to focus on what you're good at in this task. So for running, like think about what you're good at, right? And what you enjoy about it right before. Right before your event is not the time to think about your mistakes or weaknesses or even try to correct anything. Before the event, you need to search for opportunities to stay positive. All that other stuff happens in practice or happens when you're training, the ways that you're thinking about your weaknesses or imagining the scenarios that could go wrong. That happens far before the few days before your race. On race day, you only think of the things you're strong at and also the positive outcomes that can happen. So that's one of those where um, the two scenarios I was describing, race day tends to be, for many of us, um, it reduces the noise of the stressful circumstances of life because we tend to get outside of our normal life situation. Um, many have described if you're racing in your own backyard, 
then you tend to not feel quite the same. Well, what Andy's describing here, the idea that you can kind of like exit some of that and focus more positively and not be distracted by those stressors, negative considerations and such. Um, Remember that the negative bias is easier when we're under stress. So a lot of times it's like when I have an important race, it's often recommended to like go somewhere for the race. Don't make my important race the one in my backyard every single time. I'm not saying it can't be. I'm just saying that when that is difficult for me, one of the solutions can be race somewhere else. And I'm getting that from many of you. Um, And in conversation, hearing a lot of people say, I like to be able to race my important races, like, you know, take a weekend out of town kind of thing. So that can help with such a thing. But when the stress is more um, internally induced, as opposed to external circumstances, uh, then then we have to look back at something like the flow book, which we were reviewing at length uh, a while back. Um, Go back and listen to some of those episodes if you haven't. Uh, But then we start considering, okay, so I have to find a way to train my attention toward, as Andy was saying, toward the more positive side of things, be able to train my focus toward Mm -hmm. what is it that I'm thinking about and dwelling on, which is, you know, anyone who's talked about like meditation or mindfulness practices are talking about that exact principle. Um, And that's a key piece in being able to enter into a situation in a productive and positive state. Mm -hmm. And how we think about ourselves also influences how we do in a race, our expectation and our perception of the event. When confidence is low, we turn more negative. Hmm. So how we view these challenges is going to be like super impact, for lack of a better word. It's going to be very impacted by how we view ourselves. And that's where the conversation about confidence enters in. I don't know about any of you, and when you were born, you don't need to tell us if you don't want to, but for the 80s and 90s, which I was late 80s, we heard the self-esteem talks. It was the self-esteem era. And we were told, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. And it created a self-focused generation, according to Magnus. And self-esteem became the goal instead of self-esteem being a byproduct. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. And I love what he said. Self-esteem doesn't come from being told we're great, but rather doing the actual work and making connections. I have so many ribbons, you guys. It's I have ribbons for everything. The ribbons. It's all about the ribbons. That's a good college Math story. ribbons and cross country ribbons. ribbons. So many participation I never ribbons. Got a math ribbon. Because it was this era, because self esteem and how we view ourselves is important, but it was done in a way that created this desire for external recognition and rewards. Mm. And that's the thing that I mentioned earlier that hit really close to home because I loved the feedback, the positive feedback coming my way. And I learned to rely on it to know if I was good. Mm. If I'm good, I'm going to get praise, I'm going to get a reward. And, and if you're not getting praise and reward, it means you're not good. That's the problem that's that it the caused problem. for Andy, where if she's not hearing the affirmation, she assumes it means because she's bad. That makes me sound so needy, but I want to be vulnerable well. on this pod- podcast. <laughs> that that is that is a struggle. Like I, I liked the feedback, and I enjoyed getting ribbons and medals and the trophies with l- little plastic people on top. But that fed into this notion that... I will see my reward. So c- contrast that with Zach, who assumes he's going to win everything he does <laughs> all the time. Well, wow, we're painting ourselves in a, just a really good way right now. <laughs> Everyone's going to stop listening to this podcast oh, after this episode. Goodness, so who wants bad. to hear these people? Um, we're honest. That's what's going on here. Uh, no, but but so you, you have to then, I, I was just going to, that wasn't a Joke completely. I wasn't actually going to talk about myself at all. Um, Remember what the authors of Four Disciplines of Execution argue, which is if engagement is a goal um, in terms of like focusing on productive and being productive in our work, um, then the idea often is that uh, when people are engaged, then they will accomplish and achieve things. And the authors there argue that 
it's by achieving things that people become engaged mm. more that it's more that than the other, not that it's never the other thing. Um, and so in the similar sense here, Magnus's argument is that by seeing success, you gain confidence, or at least that's the way it should be done because then that confidence is earned confidence or it's confidence based on a reality, as opposed to if I'm just trying to make you feel confident, whether or not there's a real thing in which you should be confident, um, that itself isn't necessarily going to help people long-term, especially now in the short term, it could be valuable. So I'm not going to discount the situations where you say, well, this kid has no confidence and we need the kid to have some confidence to be willing to try. I do see those kinds of situations. However, in a general sense, the goal should not be the confidence because the confidence doesn't do anything for me long-term if it's not based on a real thing, mm -hmm. especially in terms of my own being my own capacity to formulate confidence. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the importance of the process goals as well. Because as a runner, if all of my goals are tied to outcomes, I can't control every factor that's involved in that. And as such, I often can go long periods of time without seeing any progress in those outcomes. It can happen. For instance, injury, for instance, illness, for you know, all the things. And so instead, I identify what are the things that help me get closer to being able to achieve those things, process goals. And then I can see success in terms of like, did I do a core workout three times a week, every week for the last four weeks straight? That is success. Mm. I can gain confidence because I know that is helping me be better able to achieve something. Mm. Speaking of things that help you or not help you gain confidence. <laughs> uh, Mark Freeman was credited for this one, the trap of giving other people control of your self-esteem. So we're going back to reliance on external reward yeah. is that you have your whole self-image and satisfaction in other people's hands. Yeah. So if our self-esteem is based on the outward, we have no control mm -hmm. over this aspect that's so important to a thriving life. So Paul Tuff, author of Helping Children Succeed, um, it's a widely read book in education circles. Uh, he talks a lot about external rewards. And one of the things that he identifies very clearly is that external rewards tend to have um, negative net outcomes long term. So while his point is being made, um, we're putting control in the hands of others, but we're also basically saying it's, it's not just that we're giving control to someone, but we're saying I can't control that. So like whether or not something is of value to me has nothing to do with my choices. It's whether other people have done something to place value on it, which is a really nasty thing to do. Like long term, that's just bad, but it's also one of the easiest traps to fall into. Thus, social media it has created <laughs> I knew going there no it has created true, a global though. culture based on the premise that something is only valuable if everyone else thinks it's valuable and so something of me is only valuable and worthwhile if everyone else thinks it how absurd is that yeah. so we've given everyone else control over our self-esteem which mm -hmm. is sickening in a sense when we think about it in terms of like a, how large scale that is yeah. now here's what paul tuff says even more so though which is the important thing so in a population where some where self-esteem or confidence are even lower or where there's a higher degree of struggle and a higher degree of uh challenge and so now he's talking about students again who the students who are the the most struggling or at-risk populations for instance he will say that the external rewards are even more negatively impactful for those populations. Mm -hmm. So then you look at it and you say, wow, people who already um, are are prone to difficulty with self-esteem self and confidence are even more harmed by this anomaly. That's not good. No. Wow. There's a lot to dig into there. <laughs> and there's a lot that we'd like to say about finding real confidence that definitely goes far beyond performance and the discussion about running and finding about who you are and what you're if you're created you know who you're created to be and that you're here for a purpose and that you have value um i want to say all those things you do have a purpose you do have value that far exceeds what you do but we're going to talk about what steve magnus wrote about for like practical implementation mm -hmm. of creating inner confidence for sports First one, lower the bar, raise the floor. 
And I love that he shared this because I have done this without knowing it. It kind oh, of made exciting. me thrilled. Yeah. Tell us. The, the idea is that you set a minimum expectation. I know I can do X and it's achievable and repeatable. Hmm. You can have other goals. You can have your big goals, your dreamy goals. That's what Andrea Pomeransky says. Dreamy goals. Dreamy goals. You can have your dreamy goals. <laughs> But on that same day, you also also say, I can do this. This I for sure can do. And that gives you a confidence going into the race that you're going to accomplish that goal. Now, this is where we often talk about like the idea of a goal that's like in the Goldilocks zone of challenge, as Daniel Pink writes, um, where it's not too easy, but not too hard. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the temptation when I realize how fulfilling it is to be able to taste that success here is to lower the bar so much that it's no longer a fulfilling accomplishment. And so that's where, you, you know, you have to find kind of, there's a right spot for it right. in terms of these types of things. And it's pretty easy to find because you get to a point where it's like, I don't feel like I've accomplished anything when I achieve that thing that I set out to achieve. Well, that's probably because the bar was in the wrong place. Right. And what he's saying is is actually a little different than what I think what you're trying to say right now. It's the idea that you, you still have a standard or you still have a goal, right. but you say, I at least can do this. The right. floor is what's raised. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, I have an idea about this because we were talking about the whole 80s, 90s kids. You know that phrase like shoot for the stars or shoot, shoot for, the, for moon, the moon and you'll land, and you'll land among the stars. How silly is that quote? It's so silly. You can't land among the stars. They're light years and light years away beyond the moon. You're there's, nowhere nearer the stars if you shoot for the moon. Than if, there's anyway. just a really, really long <laughs> way to fall if you don't have levels and tiers of goals. Ah. So if we have levels and tiers of goals, as Magnus is talking about raising the floor, then you don't fall as far. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? I, maybe. But if you just shoot for the stars and you don't have any other tiers of goals, then you do fall pretty hard and it's very disappointing. And mm. it's hard to rally during a race if you feel like you're totally missing the mark. Yeah. That, you know, so it's it, it's challenging. This is kind of the difficulty with on on premise. These things are not easy things um, in terms of like what it, what does it look like when I'm actually like setting my goals and. Am I getting it wrong? You know, way too easily, you're going to hear a conversation like this and think, well, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm getting it right right now with my goals. And, but that's not the point. The point more here is where when I find that it's difficult for me to be confident or when it's difficult for me to feel successful, what are some things that I can examine in terms of adjustments mm -hmm. that might get me closer? And that's where the honesty piece comes in to stop masking our weaknesses mm -hmm. and trying to appear or make excuses for the things that we need to work on. It's okay to be imperfect. Shed the idea that you need to be perfect, but also have the boldness and the confidence to admit the things that are weak that need to be worked on in order to move forward. And that sounds very simple, but I think it can be, at least for me, the excuses come in. Like, this is why I don't do this. This is why I haven't been committed to doing this thing. Like, I make all these excuses and that's the mask that I wear in order to avoid really truly examining the ways that I can improve. Hmm. The other part is trusting your training and trusting yourself and then developing a, a quiet ego. <sighs> So he doesn't want us to all have loud egos like, like yeah. Zach. And he goes a little too loud. Okay. And now there is a relationship between confidence and control and having the feeling of control and actually being in control on your run is going to help aid in your success. And confidence and control, like I said, go hand in hand. And the quote is this, what happens over the course of distance running is open to constant change. Athletes have to make untold decisions that relate to their many bodily states. So many bodily states in the marathon. I'm not sure where to go with that. <laughs> many bodily states. <laughs> what concerns us, therefore, is how effective a training plan can be if the body stands. Uh, I'm sorry. Effective the training plan can be. Now, that can be looking at, like, the coach in the stands. Does he know what the body is feeling at the very moment? Or is it the person on the track? That person needs to be in control of the training process, which, again, I'm very 
happy to hear you know someone else articulate this in the research of how confidence works because that is what our goal is when our, we have our athletes is that we want this communication so that we know where the athlete is at and we can advise them but they are in the driver's seat and they tell us how they're doing how they're think you know what they're thinking about certain things and what they need in order to move forward in their fitness journey so to have that that part of the control piece is going to help an athlete become more confident if they're understanding, and I'm guessing you like to understand if you're listening to this podcast today, about how training works and how our brain works and how that all fits into this sport that we all love called running. And what that then ultimately means for me mm-hmm. in this moment, mm-hmm. you have to, you're, it's the constant interpretation or in, interpolation extrapolate anyway you're you're having to constantly apply a lot of different considerations to a moment and how you're feeling and think what is it i should be doing right now oh and this idea actually was not steve magnus this was from joseph mills and michelle and mitchell um Falkultz from the athletics coaching center but having the power of choice is very positive and it gives a runner control when we put people in the position when you are in the position to choose it gives you this switch that's on and the tr- and it trains the prefrontal cortex allowing you to understand and regulate sensations of pain, fatigue, anxiety. So you learn to become a more intuitive runner as we like to say by making those decisions with the information that we're receiving from our body such as pain, fatigue, anxiety. Well, and it's somewhat trial and error, making those decisions and then seeing what happens as a result of those decisions. Mhm. And if it doesn't go as hoped and planned, you try it a little differently next time. Mm-hmm. A couple of practical tips that we're going to conclude the main topic with for training to have control. You go from small to large. So start with, <laughs> we like to say this a lot on this podcast, start with one small thing that you can control and then move on to the next and the next. Give yourself choices. All or nothing often leads to nothing. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the entropy argument. Everything breaks down, and so if your only option is you have to have it all, it's, something's going to break down. And yeah. So flip the script. Give yourself a choice. Make a decision that's going to help you with that day, and that's we we advocate here for understanding your training so that you can make a good choice when it comes to decision making in a workout. What am I going to do next? So is it near muscular? Okay, maybe I'm going to switch to a different length of interval. Or I am in a steady run and I am feeling fatigued way too early on. I don't think it's sustainable. Okay, I'm going to slow it down. Even though everyone wants to negative split, it's okay to slow it down to be able to complete the workout. Ending the workout early is not as helpful. You know, so all of these decisions that we are making. And then finally, adopting a ritual. And there's a theory of... Uh, compense what's that word compensatory control (laughs) compensatory (laughs) control we try to establish control in the outside world to gain control in the internal and that's where you're going to see a lot of athletes have little rituals where they you know baseball players that tug on their ears and do all that funny stuff well it's actually good for the brain because it has this calming effect where we have control over this ritual that we do right before we have a big performance or an event or a race which is one of the secondary purposes of things like pre-run drills yes. and routines. <laughs> Not that we're trying to make the case for why you should be doing more of that. You always are making that case. Always. I'm going to do so even more when we start talking with the surgeon here in a yeah, few weeks. Good. So point being, yes, um, creating little things, basically finding the things that you can control in such a capacity that it helps orient you toward the thing you're trying to accomplish, especially in terms of a physiological challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all for this week. We're going to continue the conversation again soon. Now on to the world of running. Let's get it started with a quick shout out to the A to Z runners who ran and competed in events this past weekend. Uh, Namely, Craig, RJ, Pete, Dan, and Daniel Mm -hmm. competing in various events all over the country, (laughs) all over the place, um, and in lots of different temperatures. (laughs) I'm I'm being literal here. We're talking about Houston. We're talking about Arizona. We're talking about San Diego. We're talking about Michigan. 
Lots of temperatures represented there. Um, so yeah, shout out to all of those who did in fact endeavor to compete in something. And a quick note here, shout out and a special congratulations to RJ for a major debut yeah. in the marathon, his first marathon in an incredible performance at that. Did he get a half marathon PR in Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> well, not in route. Both halves of both his halves. full marathon were... <laughs> Huge half marathon PRs as well. Fantastic. So it was, just, it was a great. It That's was so great. exciting. Congrats, RJ. That was mm -hmm. really cool to see. Speaking of fast half marathons, you know we're going to talk about it because it's the big news of the weekend. Emily Sisson is sizzling in Houston half. You oh, you said, love my you alliteration. Did that. You did that. You, I just. You, I did do it. Sizzling Sisson? Sizzling Sisson. I don't know. It's going to catch on. I don't know. Especially I, with I how she's not. been running. Oh, I like it. I'm not so sure about that. So Emily Sisson improved her own American record for those that haven't heard yet. <laughs> for those who missed it when we said it a couple weeks ago, Sisson currently holds the half and full American records, yeah. which, by the way, it's been a while since a female has held both of those records at the same time. Um, and to just kind of prove the point to the world, I guess, she broke the marathon record in October of 2022 and now rebroke her own half marathon record just a few months later. Yeah. So it's like no denying the fact that she's on the top. She improved her own American record in the half by 19 seconds, running an overall time of 107.52. 106. That's sizzling. 52. 106. You said 107. So she is now the first American oh. female to run <laughs> under 107 in the half marathon, which is another benchmark. It's awesome. Crazy. It was just kind of amusing to me. In her Instagram post, she wrote that it hurt a little. <laughs> just a little it hurt a little just a little yeah i would expect that it would um but also she says that there's probably some room for improvement for her because she started out really fast in the first 5k and then slowed a little bit but she thinks that if she would have like settled down a little bit there in the beginning that she might have had an overall a little bit better of a maybe time maybe it wouldn't have hurt at all then <laughs> maybe it would have hurt but it hurt a little because she went out a little fast uh <laughs> but anyway huge performance by sisson and she was second in the overall race um i mean in the race for the women by hiwat jebaramwai of ethiopia who ran 106 28 I think That's this is. Far, I think that is right. Not far behind. No, it's one oh six. Andy, her previous time was well, well under. It was one oh six fifty two. Anyway, um, so Molly Huddle, who has also okay, held right. the half marathon record uh, not terribly long ago, um, had a baby nine months ago and ran the race, and she ran a fast time too. It's like wow, she's uh, you know postpartum yeah one ten oh one. And then that qualifies her for the Olympic trials and the marathon if she wants to do it. Jenny Simpson as well. She debuted in 110.35. So there was a handful of women that qualified with that half marathon mark. And as you'll remember from a conversation we had a few weeks ago, that that just opened for half marathon because it has to be within a year of the Olympic trials that you can qualify with the half. The full has been open for a while now. A couple years. Yeah. So, uh, And then on the men's side in the half marathon, it was a sprint finish. <laughs> that is always fun. Always fun. So there's Ethiopian Leul Gebrselesi Aleme, who ended up winning in that sprint finish in a time of 60 minutes and 34 seconds. One hour and 34 seconds, which is, you know, pretty fast. <laughs> less, less than a second, though, ahead of Wesley Kiptu from Kenya, which, you know, whenever you got to run a half marathon and then sprint through the finish, I just always wonder why they do that to themselves. Well, they, they didn't do it on purpose. No, of course not. But, you know, some some might like it. I don't mm -hmm. know. The first American finisher was Connor Mance, and he placed sixth in 101.12. PR for Connor Mance. Very good. Half marathon as well. Very nice. There are also fast marathon times in Houston. And the men's marathon came down to a really close finish again. In fact... It was the closest Houston finish since 1996 in the men's marathon. And it was won by Dominic Andauro. And then the Kenyan outleaned Tezdat Ayana of Ethiopia to claim the victory in 21036. Mm -hmm. Did I say did I say that right? I believe. Oh, I'm sorry. I think that that was the history part right here. In 1996. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then uh the winner for 2023 was Tezet Didi. Uh, Ayana of Ethiopia. Well, on the women's side, it was also a fast race, and this time, coming over, uh, coming overseas was Japanese runner Hitomi Nia, 
winning the race in 219.24. More than six minutes ahead of the That's next That's a very fast marathon time. It is. <laughs> Especially but also, for a non-majors race. We yeah. should acknowledge the fact that either you're running that kind of time in majors or Valencia. Not in the Houston Marathon. That's crazy. Yeah. Eight American women ran the Olympic trials qualifying time, but many of them had already qualified. Nah. And I didn't do the work of cross-checking them. So I'm sorry, guys. But Not sure exactly which eight of them, Eight of them ran the Olympic trials qualifying time in the marathon but many of them i i recognize their names and had already been on the list so including including <laughs> previous uh, podcast guest andrea pomeranski she ran a personal best time yet again and she's a master's runner she's so cool in 231.06 for seventh overall keep congrats away. andrea keep oh, away. so thrilling good stuff well, let's jump ship for a second and head to the track in the short distances. Um, and this is an event we wouldn't necessarily normally report on, except for that the previous record holder happens to be Andy's favorite person on the what? track. Oh, I mean, I like her. I have a lot of favorites. I you think do. That she's, well, she's one of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so downplay. On the college scene in the NCAA, the 600-meter run is not – is it a dash? Yeah, it is a dash. Sorry. It's called the 600-meter dash. Um, it is not a highly contested or regularly contested event because NCAA does not compete in that distance at the championships. However, that being the case – there are a few instances where people will go out and try to run fast times in that race, including, as it were, this one at the Arkansas Invite. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, Ating Mo, current American record holder in the 800 meters, also previous collegiate record holder in the NCAA at the 600 meters, um, she had set that record during her freshman year when she ran one year of college and then you know went pro. Um, so Britton Wilson then broke that legendary runner's mm -hmm. record, which is always an impressive thing when you see something. But she didn't just break it. She broke it by a chunk. What yeah. did she knock off of this thing? Well, almost a second. Seven? Is that almost right? Almost a second. Yeah. We're, so she we're posts... talking about a 600-meter dash. Yeah. That's a lot of time. Yeah. So Wilson posted a time of 125.16 over the distance, and the thing most time was 125.8. And for Wilson, this makes her number seven on the U.S. all-time list, and then number ten all-time in the world. That's that's fast, that's fast and exciting. Good. Yeah. So you know, do do the math a little bit, and it's like, okay, so how fast per quarter is someone running in order to run a minute and twenty-five seconds? And that's you know, so if you're running sixty-minute quarters, that would be a minute thirty. So chop five seconds between a quarter and a half and you're talking about like 58 Whoa. seconds and holding <laughs> 57 how, what's my math that is super fast yeah. and hard to do and this was the season opener <laughs> first and race that, on the track for the yeah. season so so, yeah. that, so that's impressive stuff and we're we're just really excited because indoor track is starting to steam up here and we're going to be reporting more and more on that and it's fun when you can throw in some good stuff on the roads too now and again so that'll be good as well but at the moment, that's all we have for you today. And as such, we just need to close out with two more reminders first and definitely don't miss it. We're going live. And if you're listening to this, chances are you're listening to it while you're running. Hopefully it's before Wednesday, January 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Find us on Facebook. We're going to be live with Rivertown Races' Andrew Buicama talking about how to train in January for a spring race. What does your January training look like? It's going to be a great conversation. And you can find it at our Facebook page or on Rivertown Races' Facebook page. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.